so uh, we are at our third seasonal uh, break from our normal topics to discuss a work of uh, culture or art. And today we are talking about the 2014 film Mockingjay Part 1. Have you read or seen any of those even? Uh, I've seen I've seen all three of them that the, of the films that have come out. I've not read okay. any of them yet. Oh, okay. Um, I'm doing my Harry Potter thing where I wait until I've seen all the movies and I keep saying that once I've seen all the movies, I'll go back and read all the books, but then I'm not going to. Billy and I thought of that the other day and I realized, I was like, wait, it's been years. Has he read them? I'm waiting for the ninth <laughs> movie to come out. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yes, today we're talking about um, Harper Capote's To Kill a Mockingjay. Um, <laughs> the 2010 comic book miniseries Hawkeye and Mockingbird from Marvel Comics. <laughs> Learn a book. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I thought, I thought this was about the 2012 TV movie Mockingbird Lane about the Munsters. Was that like an Ant-Man crossover? I'm just very confused. You are listening to Priority, a podcast that's usually about choices, limitations, and getting stuff done. Priority is hosted by Katie Leibman and her brother, Max Leibman. That's me. On today's episode, entitled Tequila Mockingbird, we're taking our quarterly art and culture break. For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on the podcast today, visit us online at priority.fm slash 27. Nailed it. Um, yes. No, so we, yes, we are uh, making the foray into um, Harper Lee's 1960 novel, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, <laughs> my favorite cocktail, To Kill a Mockingbird. <laughs> um yeah, so um, I had been thinking about um, what cultural artifacts have stuck with me over time for whatever reason um, when we were thinking about what we wanted to take up as a topic for, um, as you said, this our third installment of the, the sort of cultural series. Um, and I had read as many especially American students have done. I read To Kill a Mockingbird um, sometime in high school um, as part of a literature course and an English course. But then I had reread it most recently in 2013 on a kick that Billy and I got on where we had um, a big list, a couple dozen novels and works of nonfiction and different collections that we had always meant to read or really wanted to read again. Um it was on that list, and so I, I got to it a couple years ago. And out of a lot of the stuff that I was returning to that I had either read or was meant to have read but never did, <laughs> um, it really stood out to me. One of my notes to myself was um, that although I've never really been able to articulate a favorite um, single work or a single author, um, like it was really sticking with me, and so I thought it would be... Um, this would be a good excuse to come back to it sure. Um, and think about not only why did I enjoy it so much, but why was it standing out in the sea of other um, classics, quote unquote, mm-hmm. that um, I wanted to go back and read as an adult sure, um, or encounter for the first time and seriously with real attention now. Um, yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, the book came out in 1960. Um 
Lee spent a couple years uh, drafting this novel, and as many people might know by now, um, her work, Ghost at a Watchman, which has been released as her second acclaimed novel, as far as anyone can tell, was actually just an early draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. It is most likely the draft that she initially sent to her publisher, and they said, this is really good, we're going to take you on board, but rewrite this. Um, and so what happened was the flashbacks that were in Ghost at a Watchman were uh, pulled out and expanded and revised and chopped up and moved around, um, and that those nuggets eventually became To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, yeah. So Max, <laughs> when we <laughs> talked, um, you, you were kind enough to reveal that you actually had never read To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-mm. No, um, I have somehow, uh, <laughs> skated through all of high school and a great deal of college and I never, ever, 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 ever did most of what is considered required reading. I think, um, the American high school canon, um, I, uh. I got a lot of, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how I did it exactly. Cause I got all of my <laughs> literature credits in, in high school. Mm-hmm. I took the required number of classes. I did, I did skate through, uh, and I think in a previous offline conversation, I reported only one book I did this with. I did skate through two books on the strengths of, uh, Cliff's notes. And, um, in the case of Huckleberry Finn, also some previous knowledge from having had it read to us as, as small children. But right. um, I also uh, – I remembered this morning while I was prepping that I did this – I did a similar thing for Wuthering Heights except for I'd never actually you know, had Wuthering Heights read to me because no one in our family believed in torture when we were growing up. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but yeah, I, I've managed to avoid an awful lot of, of other things somehow or other um, that, that a lot of other people <laughs> have had to read, including To Kill a Mockingbird, mm-hmm. until until this past weekend. No, and that's funny because especially as, um, you know, I would consider us both young adults in the uh, digital age, um, There's there are even more opportunities to want to fake your cultural literacy, as it's mm-hmm. called, and say, oh, yeah, I'm sure I've read that at some point. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even if on reflection – you know, oh, I didn't actually read that article. I just read the headline. Or yeah, all no, I really know I, about it is like one clip from the movie made in 1977 that's used in Muppet Babies. <laughs> yes. Oh man, but there are so many things like that. Muppets and Simpsons and so many places that were good for. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, oh, totally. thank you. Now I understand the token reference. Yeah, Sesame um, Street. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, big cultural uh, collages there. Um, but yeah, so again, another good excuse to come back to this novel in particular. Um, but so after hearing that from you, one thing that I really wanted to know, um, (laughs) so it's a little background and I think I told you this story. Um, I had a student last year who we discovered across the course of the year in his upbringing, he didn't leave a lead a particularly censored or sheltered childhood, but for whatever reason, his household and his friends didn't watch a lot of Disney movies. Hmm. And so he had only ever seen maybe one Disney movie before the age of 21 or 22. Um, you know, was sort of familiar with the images from others, but had never seen it, didn't know what happened in them. Mm-hmm. So as a result, he actually had a sort of knowledge gap 
about <laughs> fairy tales that even <laughs> though even though Disney messes up and, and changes and manipulates so many of those stories from the original text, of course, they at least give you a sense of some of what happened. Um, and he just had no clue. So our, our new favorite thing was, so-and-so, could you please describe for me the plot of, say, Peter Pan? <laughs> so he would try to call up any images that he had in his brain about like, okay, I've seen a picture of the pirate and I've seen a picture of him flying with some children out of a house. So his, his summary for Peter Pan was, you know, fairly accurate. Um, he gets children, makes them fly and takes them to pirates. <laughs> That's what Peter Pan is. <laughs> takes Which them really, to pirates. I mean, and takes them to pirates. He chose his verbs very carefully. He's like, well, I don't know what happens once they're there, so I'll just say the part that I know. Like, he leads them there, I guess, you know. <laughs> he takes them to pirates. Um, yes. So, Max, as far as you could tell before you read it, what did you think happened in To Kill a Mockingbird? Uh, Boo Radley makes everyone fly and takes them to pirates. <laughs> Uh, no, I, mean... <laughs> I, I wrote I wrote down I wrote down what I could think of, which wasn't much, um, and and I can I can read them back to you. Uh, I wrote down Atticus Finch, yes, someone named Scout, <laughs> <laughs> something something racism, <laughs> which mumble, is, is not not really me being able to not able to read my writing. I literally wrote down something something racism because that oh, was about the level at which I understood the plot or the mm -hmm. significance of racial relations in the books, at least mm -hmm. in the book, at least from what I could remember. Um, I think there was a movie about this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I know I actually meant Boo Radley because uh, Courtney had mentioned the name, but I wrote down Bo Dudley. <laughs> you don't know Bo Diddley. <laughs> so we're talking today about the 1990s alternative band, the Boo Radleys. Um, <laughs> and the last thing that I did not write down in my notes, because it would be cheating, but I'll mention, that I think eventually, if we had been preparing for this slightly longer, would have occurred to me before I read the book. Because as soon as I came across the first hint that it was coming, I was like, oh, duh. I did, in fact, know that there was a trial that was central to the plot of this story. Sure, sure. Um, at some point in my life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so. <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. I think, <laughs> so I, think I pretty much got it. We can just move on to talking about the meaning now. I've, I've, da, 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 now that I've laid down the entire plot and, and sketches of all the characters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, incisive, that racism stuff. Um, yeah, so um, I'm, I'm going to bet that... Um, after running through a sort of overview of the the main uh, pieces of what's going on, um, folks who are familiar with it, I think a lot of this will come back to them because it is, it's not a terribly complicated story. Um, and the prose certainly isn't terribly complicated. It's written from a scout, um, a child's perspective. Um, and whatever else we get to, I think it'll come up with context clues or we'll have specific moments we're thinking of and we'll be able to explain. Mm -hmm. um, um, or the yeah. listener should just go read the damn book. Well, that too. But if they don't want to pause right now for this <laughs> riveting conversation about racism and someone named Scout. Um, yeah. So our, our central characters are Scout and her brother, Jem. Um, for most of the book, I believe Scout's about eight years old. Um, 
little younger. Oh, before before we go too far into the summary, very sorry. Can I mention one more impression that I did not write down? Because <gasps> yes, I didn't please. think I needed to. But once I got into the book, I almost immediately realized was completely wrong. Um, again, warning, you know, reminding the listeners, I did not read this book. I did, this wasn't assigned in a class that I, I didn't skate past it. Like it just, I never, never had encountered the story. My impression, going back to Wuthering Heights, my impression of the character Atticus Finch, perhaps just based on his name, I don't know, uh, was that he was like a, a remote, distant, mean-spirited Heathcliff-like character. Oh, that's funny. I thought he was a bad guy. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Yeah, last, heard, last impression. <laughs> yeah, if you heard his name out of context, it almost does sound harsh, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you know there's got to be some bad actor in this book. <laughs> I mean, sure. there, aren't, there aren't really books about racism, you know, novels about racism where everybody's a good guy. Uh-huh. And it comes off looking great. Uh-huh. Interesting. That's funny. For sure. Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm very sorry. Please no, carry no, no, on with your fine. summary. No, and as a... Um, you know, I, you know, sometimes teach this stuff too, um, literature, but that's always interesting to me to <laughs> hear what people thought about stuff, then what they experienced and then what they thought after. I think that process is so interesting, mm-hmm. um, especially because it's usually funny on the front end <laughs> <laughs> and take them to pirates. Um, yes. Yes. So Atticus Finch um, is Scout and Jem's father. Um, he is widowed. Um, their mother died when Scout was very small and Jem was um, slightly older. He's four years older than Scout. Um, they live in a small town in Alabama um, called Makeham, um, which is uh, created in the likeness of Harper Lee's own hometown, Monroeville, Alabama. Um, And it's very much centered on how things work (laughs) in Makeham, Alabama. Um, So we get, um, because it's from Scout's point of view, we do get a lot of um, sort of childhood pastoral scenes, um, the shenanigans of um, Scout and her brother, but also their friend Dill, who is the nephew of one of their neighbors who comes to stay every summer. Um, We hear about Scout's distaste and things that happened to her at school, distaste for and things that happened to her at school. Um, One of the ongoing sort of adventures that they're always concocting has to do with um, a reclusive neighbor named Boo Radley, um, whose real first name is Arthur, Mr. Arthur Radley. Um, who, (laughs) well, how did, how did you see Boo? Uh, what did you make of him? (laughs) I, well, again, not really knowing anything about the character before I came in. Um, I very quickly ascertained that, um, that he was the archetypal figure. And I mean, I say I ascertained, it's pretty obvious because it's, it's right there on the page almost as soon as we get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of the archetypal figure in, in stories for and about children where there's a house that is very storied in the community and somebody spooky that no one ever really sees or knows anything about lives there. And the kids all tell horrible stories and are scared to go there or near it or whatever. Yes, um, yes. And that's actually a thought that I had as I was reading it is it occurred to me, I don't know that this this particular story is the genesis of that trope, but that is something that, you know, I know is it's it's widely used, it's very common mm-hmm. 
you know, even even to, I would even go so far as to say the old man and the who's the neighbor in the first Home Alone is is sort of a very watered down version of the same thing. Yes, good parallel. Yeah, thank you. That was much better than I was thinking in my brain of how to sum up that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know if that trope has a name um, because uh, again I somehow have avoided my entire required literature curriculum, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, you're right. It, though. it, it struck mm-hmm. me though, like, the, and this may even be like I, again. I don't know. This might even be the genesis of it. For all I know, mm-hmm. um, I haven't read a lot of 18th century literature about what children think of a spooky house and its resident. Mm-hmm. No, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, variations like oh, old Mrs. So and So. They say she's a witch, and she. Mm-hmm. You know, turns Uh, dogs into toads in her basement. Right. And the the other part of the trope, I don't know if I mentioned in my summary just now, the trope trope ultimately being that that person turns out to be just fine. You know, Mm -hmm. even if he or she is weird and eccentric, like they are are good at heart and or Mm -hmm. maybe even the hero or, you know, provide a key bit of whatever, you know, for the children. Mm -hmm. Not not to spoil To Kill a Mockingbird. (laughs) (laughs) Um. No, most certainly though, um, but he's established um, in all their their childhood summer adventures as a um, an ongoing source of mystery and speculation and um, well, I mean, really a, a target for harassment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, from an adult's point of view, we can see that what they're doing, you know, wanting to run up to the house and wanting to plant a note on his windowsill with a fishing pole from across the yard. Um, you know, bothering him essentially. Um, we can see as readers, um, but yeah, he's an ongoing figure um, in the children's lives. Um, meanwhile, their father Atticus is a lawyer in the town, um, a professional man. Although his family has a long history in the area, um, his sister, their aunt, is always talking about um, how they have so much background. They've they've been on the land so long, and that gives people. Um, refinement and and makes them more important in the area um, and all this, which Atticus and the children don't really um, they don't really hold to that much, but um, as we see, certain people in the town do. Um, but across the course of one of their um, years, Atticus is assigned to a case to. Um, defend a black man who is accused of having raped a white woman in town. Um, And this is the case, the trial that you mentioned, rightly, um, that appears in the novel. Um, This is the case that really uh, shakes up the town, but is also sort of the big pivotal event, um, at least in what we get to see of Scout's life, um, that really starts... um, turning those gears toward adulthood. Um, she starts having to see the, the ugliness of um, how the adults are handling their feelings of involving the case, um, what it means for Atticus to uphold justice, what it means for the town um, to operate justly. Um, yeah. And in a sort of dangerous, tense situation too, um, not just for, uh, the young black man who's accused, but for Atticus as his defendant or as his um, lawyer in the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, other major uh, plot points. I'm trying to think of anything else we might want to be reminded of. Well, 
one one thing, sort of a general comment um, that I have. So I, I had made a joke to you uh, when I texted that I was – I said if there were chapter titles in this book, then, then chapter nine could have been called At Last the Plot mm-hmm. um, because by <laughs> sort of my jaded modern eyes um, – I felt like not much had happened. Like, it was an enjoyable enough book up to that point. But um, until Chapter 9, like, I you, I at least don't um, or didn't, and, and maybe somebody who's read it a couple times through would, but I didn't feel the shadow of the trial um, until that point. And, and for all I knew, like, I mean, it's not... Um, he's a he's a pivotal figure in a lot of ways, but it's not a book about Boo Radley. But at that point, I was kind of assuming that eventually it was going to become a book about Boo Radley um, mm-hmm. and the children's relationship with him in in a very different way than it ultimately was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in chapter nine, you know, the the trial starts, the the slow march into the trial begins, and I I was like, okay, here we are. Um, and mm-hmm. actually, I referred to it as Southern pacing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, no, I'm I'm completely okay with inventing uh, <laughs> literary concepts. <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, it just, it's, uh, there are even comments in the book um, when she talks about life in Alabama and the South in general about, you know, things being hot and slow and, and people being leisurely and, you know, mm-hmm. not having much to do and not hurrying about doing it. Um, <laughs> so I just, it just occurred to me, you know, slow Southern pacing. <laughs> Just picturing the rocking chairs and the iced tea. Um, nice cool or, mint julep on a July oh, afternoon. <laughs> None of these things are actually in the novel. We should say like, oh, <laughs> Calpurnia's lemonade. <laughs> Look, an, an actual reference to the novel. Uh, no, I hear you though. Um, which is funny. So Matt R., the previous owner of <laughs> my used paperback of To Kill a Mockingbird, um, he stopped giving chapter titles at seven. So I think he agreed, which means he probably stopped and was like, well, I'm going to skip ahead to the part because I know the teacher's going to ask me about the trial Um, because then we don't get a note again for a long time. Um, Yeah, Matt R's annotations. I'll I'll send you some pictures from show notes. Um, Insightful. Um, For instance, chapter one, and he made a little um, addition to it once he wrote it out. Um, in pen, no less, but he wrote in the beginning, dot, 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 boring crap. <laughs> and then he scribbled out boring crap and beginning is spelled wrong. Nice. So that's fun. Um, yeah, you know, and I had thought about that, um, because I, I think maybe a modern editor might have suggested that. Yeah, I mean, what would it look like if you started the book at Chapter 9 with Scout getting into a fight with her schoolmate who's mm-hmm. ripping on her dad um, for defending a, a black man? Um, and then maybe even rearrange things so we could, I mean, we could still get all the material of the other chapters, but cl- more clearly thread Boo and the trial throughout both. I mean, at the same time. I think that would have been interesting. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, – and hearing what you said earlier about how it was written too, um, about these these you know vignettes initially being parts of flashbacks from the later – you know, what would now be the later book um, mm-hmm. and then being woven together and reworked into a novel in their own right. Like you can kind of see some of it. The other thing I'd say though that didn't occur to me until this morning – I actually – I wrapped it up this morning, so I'm – Definitely in the mode of a high school student um, 
pulling off the. I'd say any student is fair. <laughs> yeah, indeed. The required <laughs> reading immediately the before the class. Um, <clears throat> the something that occurred to me this morning, though, is, and I'm I'm sure this some some uh, probably fleet of graduate students at some point have done this as like a, a thesis. But I would like to see somebody go back and and do a um, a Chekhov's law chart of the book and see how much of the initial kind of like slow southern pacing <laughs> the lackadaisical wandering mm-hmm. actually does come back around to become important somehow and not just important like here's a sketch of how this person works so we understand later because i do think uh-huh. there's a lot of that too there's a lot of world building here yeah um, for sure but things like you know the first day of school it's important that the teacher there uh whose name i'm forgetting right now but the first grade teacher doesn't understand how the town works you know she's from the city she's from another county like she doesn't mm-hmm. she doesn't know who these people are and their family stories and that this is just how the town works and has to have um the peculiarities and eccentricities of several of the students explained to her and mm-hmm. if that didn't happen we wouldn't know as much about uh was it the cunninghams walter cunningham yeah, um, yeah, yeah, we wouldn't know as much about the Cunninghams, and Scout wouldn't have gotten in a fight with Walter Cunningham because um, she got in trouble for <laughs> shaming the teacher for not knowing Walter's story and mm-hmm. about how his family is poor but proud and won't take help. Um, right. And then she wouldn't have invited Walter home for dinner, and that wouldn't have come back around later. You know, when she's when she shakes the elder Cunningham out of his his rage in a in a near mob scene later in the book. Right. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's just it, – there's a lot of stuff like that that I, I wondered this morning. It occurred to me, you know, even as I was rocketing through the actual meat of the book uh, yesterday and this morning, I was um, still feeling like there had been an awful lot of buildup, you know, to get us to where we are now. But mm-hmm. at the end of it, I was like, you know, I wonder. I wonder how many of those threads – and I'm, I didn't go back to really think through all of them or make a list or anything, but – I feel like a lot of them, a lot more of them than I would have given them credit for initially did come back together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's – and and um, just so people won't have to look in show notes and click on it. Chekhov's law is um, something to the effect of, you know, if there is a if there's a gun on the mantelpiece in the first act, it has to go off by the end of act three. Um, mm-hmm. Basically meaning like you don't put things in a story you don't intend to use. Um, and I, I initially thought there were a lot of things lying around in the story that were like that, but – you know, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if I went back through it, if I would really feel that way about almost any of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it does yeah. certainly hold up for me. Um, because one thing that I forgot on, on from the last read through, which, you know, I mentioned was a couple years ago for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot just how funny it is. Like I was laughing out loud at different moments in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if it struck you that way, but... I wasn't laughing out loud, but I, I found it a lot more amusing um, than mm-hmm. I expected to. Mm-hmm. And there, I mean, there were some moments on this read-through, um, I was definitely noticing the heavy-handedness in some moments, um, where not only were we getting an explicit repetition of a lesson that Scout was learning, but we were hearing it in very similar wording that we already had. Mm-hmm. You know, so it wasn't really building. It was just sort of, right. in case you missed this lesson about integrity, here it is again. Right, right. Yeah, um, there's I, yeah. a lot of Atticus's dialogue uh, struck me as being extraordinarily expository. Mm-hmm. Um, and and especially when you mentioned heavy handedness, when he starts talking about things like race and, and inequality, um, 
And it's the language is nice. Like it, it sounds like something that this man would, this well-read, you know, lawyerly man would say. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, at that point, and I didn't begrudge it because it's you know this is the book I'm reading. But <laughs> it struck me that like this is this is you know even even thinking about things like the help, like you know this is oh, insanely unsubtle in. What it is like, mm-hmm. you know, this is Harper Lee saying, in case you're missing it right now, this is what the book is about. <laughs> this is the problem that I am wrestling with in the story. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I guess the balance for me is because it's first person from Scout's point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's is like, a child all right, narrating. all right. Yeah. 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 So maybe chalk it up to, oh, that's a repeated thing. Of course I'm paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to zone out and think my own inner monologue for this other part here. Um, but, oh, yeah, that thing I, I should pay attention to. Um, but, yeah, man, no, there are just certain moments. Um, I pulled a couple um, just as examples, like Atticus for how um, he is extremely professional and is very aware of all these different all the different workings of the society in which they're living. But at the same time, you can hear him having his own fun. Um, like when he's saying hello to the, the old woman um, who sits on her porch and yells at everyone, mm-hmm. Mrs. DeBose, good evening, Mrs. DeBose. You look like a picture this evening. And then Scout thinks, I never heard Atticus say what, like a picture of what. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Um, or then when, uh, so Jim in a rage uh, tramples a bunch of this woman's flowers out front, gets mad at some hateful things she has yelled, spewed from her porch, and he goes and wrecks her flower beds. And she has to go, or he has to go read to her um, as, as penance to make up for this. Um, and he's sort of whining to Atticus and saying, you know, I don't want to go, I don't want to go inside. It's all dark and creepy. There's shadows and things on the ceiling. Atticus smiled grimly. That should appeal to your imagination. Just pretend you're inside the Radley house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I, yeah, I do appreciate that balance of um, it is very much um, a tale about morality and this young girl uh, finally coming to face what this stuff looks like for the adults in her community. Um, she herself is figuring out how all these different gestures and maneuvers in society work what people's relationships are like and how they function um yeah so that was kind of one thing I was once I noticed it I was really reading and listening for throughout um Mm -hmm. for me if it's okay to if you don't mind jumping around no let's um, jump (laughs) let me take you to the very end of the book then (laughs) okay um Man, one moment that really stood out to me that I had never given this much weight before. If you think about the the really big, dramatic or pivotal moments of the book, this probably would not stand out to most people. But it that's sort of why I wanted to bring it up because to me it reflects this stuff. I'm I'm and I'm still thinking through it. I don't quite have language for all of it. And again, none of this is new. I'm sure there is a, a metric ton of stuff. Um, having been written about this book because it has been so influential and it's been around so long. Um, none of this is new, but um, the moment I was thinking about... Oh, so uh, as you uh, sort of foreshadowed, um, Boo Arthur Boo Radley finally has... Um, reveals himself to be a, a pivotal uh, figure in the plot of the book... Um, 
the father of the the woman who alleged alleged rape um, comes after Atticus's children um, as a way of sort of getting back at him for having publicly scandalized him and made him look a fool, which he was. Um, and really he started it. Um, <laughs> so came down on him, but was holding that grudge against Atticus. Um, and Boo ends up sort of being aware of what's going on and goes um, after the guy and, and gets him away from the children. Um, but so they're at the Finch's house and uh, everyone's sort of getting ready to disperse for the evening and Boo Radley's going to go home and Scout's going to walk with him back to his house. Um, and they're getting ready to go out the door and then suddenly Scout has this idea and grabs his hand and they're walking and they're about to get outside. Um, and then she realizes that, that she shouldn't lead this grown man, even though, um, he's extremely socially awkward from not having had exposure, um, mm-hmm. to polite society, you could say. Um, yeah, he's, he's not, and he's, he's kind of asked her like, you know, can, can you help me get home? Mm-hmm. hmm Yeah, almost in a childlike way mm-hmm. um, because of what his life has been like. Right. Um, but she, she still decides to be uh, ladylike, which is what her aunt has been hounding her to do for the last 40% of the book. Yeah. That's one of her sort of coming-of-age tensions is um, <laughs> her expected femininity that she has never, ever expressed any interest in. Um, yeah, so she gets to their front door, and she's getting they're getting ready to go outside, and she realizes she shouldn't walk a grown man by his hand down the sidewalk, you know, even though it's late at night. Um, but of course the town gossips could be peeking Mm -hmm. from inside their windows and all that. Uh, so Lee writes, uh, he had to stoop a little to accommodate me, but if Miss Stephanie Crawford was watching from her upstairs window, she would see Arthur Radley escorting me down the sidewalk as any gentleman would do. Um, and then we learn within a few paragraphs, uh, Scout says, I never saw him again. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I was really drawn to that just because he, Scout's, like I said, her personal tension through a lot of this, you know, if we think of this as a coming-of-age novel for this character and also this big tumultuous moment for society, but coming-of-age for her, um, it's been about how she ought to behave in society, how she ought to... Um, start this process of becoming a young lady and what that means, um, how you behave in public, how you interact with people in your home and their home and all this. Um, and in this case, she, she shows an active interest in that process, but she, she does it to give something to boo this person that she's, you know, basically tormented Mm -hmm. (laughs) through childhood and, and had wild imaginings about, um, not necessarily in an ill intentioned way, but you know, she's a kid. Um, in a very yeah. childish way. And kids are awful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, like, not because they always necessarily know better. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that final gesture of, um, yeah, that she thought to do it, that that was something that she could give Boo. Um, and then just the, how, how, like, the finality and the profoundness of it, that that was the last time she ever saw him. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, there was something I found very emotionally striking. And I mean, there's only one sentence given to it. I think it is literally like, I never saw him again. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, there, what really struck me at that point, and, and actually I found to be, yeah, I mean, I wasn't tearing up or anything, but but maybe the most emotional thing in the entire book is uh, after she walks him back over, she takes something that Atticus had said a time or three earlier in the book, uh, to your point about repetition, about, <laughs> you know, standing in a man's shoes and getting in his skin and, and walking around and, you know, seeing it from his point of view. Um, she stands on the porch and looks at what, what Boo's view of the town would be from the window um, and runs through the events of the book in her mind mm-hmm. and all of the things that, that she would have seen sitting there, you know, if she'd been Boo. Um and uh, one one detail we I don't think we had mentioned is early in the book uh, there's a there's a tree with a little hollow in it and somebody is leaving little presents for for the kids uh, for for Jim and and uh, and Scout uh, and you know in the end they figure out it was Boo who was doing it um, and what we find out in that last scene is that this entire time that he's been this imagined distant scary figure. <laughs> um, you know this ghoul that they have they have tormented and and been tormented by you know by their fantasy of they've been so scared to walk by the house and mm-hmm. you know worried about this this figure that lives inside um in the very very last you know the last act and almost the last scene she figures out and this is kind of a profound very adult realization she figures out she's had a relationship with this guy the entire time mm-hmm. or that he has had one with her rather that he's been watching her and her brother grow up and has been looking out for them and has had some attachment to them. And then she says, I never saw him again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, I don't know, it, it really, that really struck me in a way that I don't think almost anything else in the book did. Mm-hmm. No, I do love that moment of standing on, her standing on the porch. Because um, you're right, it is so quick in the big scheme of the book. Um, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, to me, it's a it's more it's a more important it's a more important revelation than just the revelation that like he's just a a guy who who you know stays indoors all the time and doesn't really know what to do in society. <laughs> you know that that in fact he's actually a nice guy and that he's going to save the day in an important way. Mm-hmm. You know, the more important realization is her realization. You know, not just that actually he's a nice guy, but that this relationship has existed, um, and yeah. it is not the relationship she thought she had to him. Mm-hmm. And that's one of her sort of processes throughout the whole thing is figuring out that even when you do figure out what the governing rules or code for a situation might be that, oh, when someone's ill, you do this. When someone in a family has died, you take this to their house. You know, even if you know the rules and codes, that doesn't mean you can, you know, watch somebody break one and say, oh, you're weird or you're gross or mm-hmm. Or whatever. Like when she has Walter Cunningham come home with her and Jem for lunch. Um, and he asks Calpurnia, their cook, their the the black woman that basically serves their family, um, asks her if she has syrup or molasses or whatever. Um, and then proceeds to dump it all over his plate. Everything on his plate, he covers it. Mm-hmm. and Potatoes, he, vegetables. Yes. And Scout is just disgusted and saying, you know, what in Sam Hill are you doing? And, and all this. And throws a fit. But Calpurnia mm-hmm. uh, drags her into the kitchen and says, he's company. Quit yelling at him. 
And <laughs> Scout and Scout basically says, but that's weird. He's doing something that's weird, and I should tell him it's weird. And Calpurnia says, no, people have different ways. Mm-hmm. And just because you don't dump syrup all over your plate doesn't mean he can't or shouldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's something that is – it's a very – I mean, there's there's two things there that are very much a good – a good capture of of childhood, I think, at least as I understood it in the 20th century. And I was a child in the 20th century, albeit a bit <laughs> later than this book is set. Um, but number one, just that, that, that basic lack of grasp of social situations and how many times um, Scout says or does the entirely wrong thing because mm-hmm. she does not know any better, doesn't have any self-consciousness about what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the flip side, too, another thing on that that I thought was really interesting in that particular scene is that there she is She is being the um, the voice of this is the way things are done and these are the social mores and this is how we conduct ourselves in this – you know, this is what what it means to have manners and to do things the proper way. Mm-hmm. Whereas in most of the book, I don't think that's the only time she does that. But in most of the book, what she is doing is fighting against all of those. Mm-hmm. You know, why do I have to wear a dress? Why do I have to go to school? You know, why do we have to act this way and say these things? I don't want to do this. Right. Yeah, and I do like along the way, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned school again. That made me think of it. <laughs> the way that. She sort of learns from Atticus and Calpurnia and these other, you know, trusted adult figures in her life. Um, their good friend, their neighbor, Miss Maudie, who um, <laughs> sort of takes care of them and makes them cake and has good humor about most things going on in town. Um, man, they really have a lot of people looking out for them. Mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I'm thinking about that now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, there's, mm-hmm. um, I actually, I missed a note. Remind me when you get done with what you're saying right now. I missed one of my notes about my expectations about the book. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about the way, so there's a lot to this process of figuring out the nuances of, of society. Of In particular, I keep saying society, but really it, we're focused on the town, the workings of the town and the families and the, the heritage that have been a part of it. It's a really good microcosmic uh, exploration. Um, but the way that along along the way scout might learn a rule or a sort of value, but then something happens that (laughs) is the opposite or contradicts that somehow, but Atticus or Cal or Miss Maudie or whoever will sort of uh, take her aside to explain the nuance and say, okay, and here's the little exception. Here's the Mm -hmm. time where we smile and nod and then we deal with it later or whatever. Mm -hmm. So like with school, um, Atticus sort of nods and listens to her her problems with the teacher who thinks that uh, she somehow she and her father have somehow done wrong because she's not following the schedule of the school. Like, why does she know how to read before she's come to school? That's nonsense. Here's the proper order of things. Um, and so Atticus sort of cuts a deal with her or presents it as a deal and says, okay, well, here I want you to get through school. School's important. So that's that's that. Um but I tell you what, just don't say anything about it at school, and I'll keep reading to you. Is that a deal? <laughs> um, you know, so they find these workarounds until Scout sort of can make those decisions on her own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. What was your note? Uh, the other thing um, that I, I ultimately decided was not an accurate impression, but <laughs> I wrote it down as an Upton Sinclair like suspiciousness of small town life. (laughs) 
Um, which actually, in in some measure, was was confirmed. I mean, there's a lot of gossip and small mindedness, and you know, mm-hmm. prejudice, of course. Uh, but at the same time, something you just said, you know, illustrates how it's it's also dispelled. There's also a lot of celebration of and warmth for the idea of small town mm-hmm. life. In that, for yeah. instance, as you point out, there's a lot of people watching out for these kids. Um, yeah, yeah. Which also, I mean, I think structurally just makes sense too. She observes at one point, uh, Scout observes that they live in kind of an old neighborhood, um, as she puts it. Like it is a neighborhood peopled with not just grown ups, but usually mature grown ups. Like they're the only kids around on their street. Um, mm-hmm. So they are the neighborhood kids. Like they're it. They, them in, in the summer's dill. Right. Um, but yeah, regardless of, of structurally how we get there, yes, they do have a lot of people looking out for them. And there's there's a lot mm-hmm. of romanticism about small towns in here. A lot of, you know, unflinching ugliness as well. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, because yeah, cause basically what, what Atticus represents is how you sort of get by with that balance and tension. Mm-hmm. <sighs> because he is... Um, man, and Lee just does a great job with these supporting characters illuminating this stuff for us. Like I was thinking about how stuff that we don't get from Scout's point of view, we often hear it from Jem, um, or we get to see Jem go through a slightly different struggle than she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get the benefit of both of them. Um, and the things that we learn about Atticus from characters like Miss Mottie. Um, right. And I forget if she's widowed or never married. Probably never married. I don't remember, yeah. I think she must be a spinster. Because otherwise they'd probably call her Mrs. Whatever. Um, but a single, you know, adult woman living in the neighborhood. Um, but yeah, Miss Maudie will sort of illuminate stuff for them when, when Scout's being thick or whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> as she would say. Um, yeah. You know, she says stuff like, you know, Scout, one of the things you'll come to learn is that certain people in society... Um, end up doing some of the hard work for everybody. And Mm -hmm. your father's one of those people um, talking about having to take on this case that it's the right thing to do to defend a person when that's your job, um, no matter the color of their skin, um, that sort of thing, Mm -hmm. that justice is justice and the system doesn't work unless a trial really is fair or as fair as it can be. Mm -hmm. So Atticus's job is to try that doesn't mean that the jury will do the right thing. Right. Um, yeah. And for folks who don't remember, haven't read, um, <laughs> the, the accused is absolutely innocent. We, there's no doubt about it as a reader. <laughs> like you can see very clearly. And um, Atticus in the trial makes the case very clearly that as a modern audience, you, yeah, no, it's absolutely crystal clear. Um, so it's not like there's any mystery to the case. Um, it's absolutely a a story of stacked odds right. against this guy. Yeah, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. No, that's a the great other point. thing I like about Atticus, and we can, if you like, we can table this and talk about it in a couple of weeks when we talk about a different book. Um, <laughs> the thing that I like is, uh, and and in contrast to uh, to Boo Radley, who could also be called this, um, but in a much more extreme way, I think it's also very clear from the sketch we get of him, you know, his behavior and his mannerisms and, and how he operates. He is really, 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 really strongly introverted. <laughs> and in a yeah. way that I think a lot of people miss because he's also – he's good in court. You know, mm-hmm. he's friendly with people. He's well-liked in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, he's not afraid of confrontation, although he handles it in a very quiet and gentle way most mm-hmm. of the time. 
But I mean, you know, just the things about like his how he conducts himself around the house and he, he needs his time with his papers and mm-hmm. reading. And yeah, it mm. seems you know, I he, love that he never remarried, which isn't necessarily, you know, introvert, extrovert. But I think it's mm-hmm. it's suggestive, mm-hmm. um, especially in that day and age and trying to raise two children as well as be a full time attorney and legislator. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just I, I think it's <laughs> she makes it very clear that. Um, and again, I think people will miss it because of his his job and his pivotal scenes. But he's definitely an introvert, and I like that because he's not like you know a bookish nerd that nobody likes or that is shy and afraid of people. Mm. No, that's huge. Um, maybe that'd be a good bridge, and of course we can keep jumping around to sure. um, to the sort of lasting takeaways or impacts um, of the book. Um, yeah, so we've been throwing around the, the phrase required reading um, <laughs> because this book is so often on um, <laughs> middle school, high school, and you know post-secondary reading lists mm-hmm. um, for literature um, courses and, and cultural conversations, um, giving some, letting fiction sort of complement um, very real contexts in uh, 20th century America. Mm-hmm. Uh, race relations. Um, but yeah, the figure of Atticus is sort of epic in literature um, with help, of course, from Gregory Peck, who played him in mm-hmm. in the movie version. Yeah, um, which which I, I have not seen, out. but uh, today, like while we've been talking, I've been flipping through a few Wikipedia pages, and when I saw that, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I might actually have to watch that. <laughs> like Gregory yeah, Peck. Yeah, I... And again, I... Watched it at some point. I know I did. Um, but I want to go back and see how it holds up, too, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And Gregory Peck, oddly enough, I'm sure that was one of his big roles, and I know he did a lot of a lot of things. Um, I think he did, anyhow, a lot of things throughout the 60s and early 70s. But uh, most of the stuff I've seen him in is actually before To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like film noir era stuff. And Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. Oh, wow, 1962. So it was it was just two years after the... Yeah, the book was an immediate success, um, sort of an overwhelming success for Harper Lee. You know, I had read that before, but that's why I was sort of surprised just now when I saw the movie was just in 62, because that's a, that's a pretty quick turnaround for mm-hmm. getting the screenplay written and the production, um, getting everybody on board and getting it going. Um, yeah, I was reading an interview, which we will link to in show notes, um, from 1964, um, where Harper Lee's reflecting on, uh, you know, it took her, I think she said it took two or three years to write the novel in its entirety, um, Mm -hmm. from starting and drafting through, um, Ghost of a Watchman, but then became To Kill a Mockingbird, getting it back to the publisher, getting it out in 1960. Um, and then now we've filled in that gap. Um, the movie starring Gregory Peck as Atticus was out by 62. Mm. Um, and then this interview in, in 64, I believe. Yeah, she was talking about how it wasn't so much that she was... Um, I'll have to find it. it. She said it wasn't so much that she was shocked or surprised. Like, that's not how she would describe the success of the novel. Um, because I think it was bestseller right away. It just really took off. Wonderful reviews. Um she said it left her feeling sort of numb, <laughs> like, <laughs> like in modern day, 
uh, parlance, we'd say like, oh, I feel like I blacked out. Like I was just, I wasn't there. <laughs> like I, I was gone. <laughs> Did I just black out? Like what just happened? Um, she was sort of describing it more so that way. Um, she had said she hoped that it would have um, a nice peaceful death by review and it would go away. And maybe like one or two good things would be said and that would give her encouragement to keep writing. Mm-hmm. But she hoped for like a, a slow death by reviewers and that was it. It's like that's a, whew, I don't know. That's a that's a lot of trepidation going into that publishing process. It sounds like. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and my kind of my impression of her life. Um, my just when again when when Go Find a Watchman was first announced was the first time I'd thought about this book in a long, long time. Sure. Yeah. Um, and never having read it, especially like I did not have much to think about it. Um, but like realizing at that point that this book had been, you know, wasn't just required reading like posthumously, <laughs> like this isn't Poe or something like this is, this was a huge success then and has mm-hmm. been kind of ever since. I mean, I'm sure it's a perennial bestseller with so many people having to read it academically. Um, but, uh, to, to find out that she'd had this huge success and then hadn't done anything sort of publicly, hadn't put any additional work out there for 50 years mm-hmm. plus. Um, I, actually, it reminded me, I, it's it's um, loosely based on the life of another author, but it reminded me of the Sean Connery film, Finding Forrester. Have you seen that by chance? A long time ago. Um, yeah, I, I think I only saw it in the theater. Yeah. He's playing a writer who wrote one novel that is celebrated and, and you know discussed in high school and college literature classes. Um, and, and at one point, like I, I think even one of the assignments that some class is doing is to write a paper on why he only wrote one novel. Mm. Um, and then he had, he had a second novel published posthumously, um, at the end of the movie. But, uh, yeah, it was, it, it, I, that's something that occurred to me, like, you know, in the run up to this, to the new book being released, um, as something of a parallel, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, so it was, it was a huge success initially. Um, I don't know much about what was said about it at the time, but one thing that really struck me as far as takeaways go is, how much it felt to me like, uh, and there's probably a literary term for this as well, but um, there's a thing you know they say about science fiction that a lot of the really great science fiction that is describing some future society and its problems is about the problems of the society that produced it, mm-hmm. um, often deliberately, sometimes not, you know, and that very often history written the same way is written the same way. Like the history that you're reading, you know, is is as much about what is going on in the society that wrote it everything is through the lens of, of, you know, leading up to where they are and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, how they're judging the past. And it kind of struck me in a way, um, I don't know if, if this is part of the discussion or if this was deliberate or, or what, uh, but as I was reading it, it felt to me like a lot of the politics, a lot of the race politics and the social norms and, you know, all, all of the issues that the story is about, was not about 1935 small-town Alabama. It was about 1960 small-town Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's completely deliberate, like if that was a, a calculated move, but it really seemed to me to be about when it was being written and how race relations were. And I did not see a lot of things that struck me as being things that would be any different, especially in, in a small town in the South, by 1960. Um, you know, we're we're still just getting to the 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 big swells of the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. at that point. Um, And I don't know, it it struck me that that might be part of why it was so popular and so powerful 
is you can kind of sneak it under the radar and say, well, I'm not, you know, this isn't a story about what's going on right now. I'm not making fun of you and your neighbors. This was a generation <laughs> ago. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of the same way one thing that occurred to me reading it is high school me reading this probably would have been like, boy, those people were sure racist and backwards back in the 30s. Oh, like, oh my absolutely. gosh, I can't believe this. Isn't it great that we're also enlightened and uh, <laughs> not prejudiced and equal-minded and yada mm-hmm. yada, you know, says the the white kid in the all-white town in Nebraska in mm-hmm. 1995. Um, yeah. You know, so I wonder. I wonder how much of that. You know, it might not have been calculated at all, but it might have just been a happy, happy accident. But I do wonder how much that had to do with the success of the book, with people being able to be distant from the protagonists and antagonists and say, you know, wow, <laughs> it sure was bad in 1935. Oh um, when really, I mean, that that same story, you know, similar stories. Um, looking at Wikipedia right now, similar stories seem to have played out in her her father's life. Um, you know, some similar trials, and I'm sure they were still going on in 1960. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As they are today in different forms. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. No, I I was thinking about that question of, so what makes this book that is set, yeah, most of it is probably roughly 1935, um, published in 1960, um, <laughs> and still being read in used paper book backs by Katie Leibman today. Um, <laughs> Like, what makes this story so sticky that it has stayed with all these readers all this time? Um, like, w- so even though it's extremely rooted in a particular time and place, it's absolutely conte- uh, contextualized. Um, but I keep thinking about that word of timeless. You know, you say a timeless work of literature, or, you know, this will this will always be applicable and stay with us forever, yada, yada, yada. Um so trying to think of what in it makes it sticky and timeless for me. Um, <laughs> the syrup, of course. Um, <laughs> all over that like an IHOP booth. Um, yeah. And for me, I think it's because the central tensions are basically human, even though they're rooted in that particular societal context. It's still about... How do we get along with each other? How do we deal with difference? Um, how do we... Ha- what happens when people want to resolve their problems in different ways? Um, right. <laughs> what am I thinking of? Um, you can cut all this out. Uh, oh, it's on New Girl, I think. Um, <laughs> I think it's in the last season of uh, the Fox show New Girl. Um, in one episode, they're sort of focusing on differences in, in gendered communication. So how the, the female characters talk to each other and how the male characters talk to each other. <laughs> the men in this particular episode, they're doing this thing where when they're going to resolve their issues or somebody's making fun of somebody too much or being awful, they just go punch each other in the balls and say, we cool. And then the other guy says, yeah, we're cool. We're cool. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> I was picturing that just now. I was like, but what happens when somebody doesn't understand that code? Um, You know, so there, there's another modern version of this issue of, wait, Walter, you can't dump syrup all over stuff. What are you doing? And then getting dragged out like, no, 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 we don't yell at the dinner table. We don't punch our friends in in the, you know, down there. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. (laughs) Well, there's the, you know, you're talking about the timelessness and and a lot of that being the humanity. Again, I'll go back to Scout. Um, I, I feel like, 
you know, in, in the language that Harper Lee is writing in, and she has a very distinct prose style, but still, she has, setting that as, setting the prose style aside, she's very well captured a lot of what I think of as childhood, and I can see a lot of myself, you know, not in Scout per se, but, like, I recognize the make-believe play-acting that they do all summer. I mm-hmm. recognize those situations where you speak up because you think you understand a rule and you're trying to, you know, instruct somebody else or put them in their place and then realize that you've got the rule completely wrong and you've mm-hmm. misread the situation. I recognize that feeling of not understanding what's going on. Um, although I, <laughs> I I don't have a good example at hand, but um, I'm, I was struck going through it how many times the description, you know, Scout is essentially saying, I don't understand what's going on, but she perfectly <laughs> parrots everything that happens and is completely apparent to us what is going on. Um, yeah. I think usually yeah. as a child, when I didn't understand what's going on, my recollection later would be, you know, a mess because a lot of how we remember stuff like that is the context, you know, what does all this mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyhow, yeah, I, I did, I feel like, you know, possibly part of what has made it enduring too, is that everyone can recognize childhood. Um, although most of our childhoods at this point don't look like that anymore, we can all recognize childhood and and scout going through it in a way that is very human and at least in America as close to universal as as you know anybody from one distinct culture and class mm-hmm. in America can can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm thinking of um, you know Harper Lee does pull. You could say pull off the child narrator so well and their examples of, you know, sort of bemoaned attempts at having a, a child protagonist. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it can be tricky, um, yeah. to get back into that space because it is, it is a sort of raw experience of the world. Um, mm-hmm. because it's painful in that like growth is painful sometimes. Ooh, um, totally. and even, even if it's not that big of a deal in the big picture, we're watching these scenes and remembering how they do pile up for mm-hmm. somebody. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't recall. Is there anything in the very, very opening pages, um, indicating roughly when she is telling the story from? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, again, I, from what you said about the the writing, obviously it's it's Scout as an adult, you know, recounting or remembering or flashing back on this in the original version. But I don't know, I don't know what point Scout, the narrator in the final book, is supposed to be speaking from. Mm-hmm. You know, she. Oh yeah. So you know what's funny? She does. She is at a distance, but she she's awfully close to it when she gets into the action. Because you were talking earlier about structure, you know, when we actually get to the trial. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about uh, what Lee's doing that very first paragraph. Well, actually, this is the first two. She's, she is setting that distance. Um, because she actually starts by mentioning that Jem breaks his arm, mm-hmm. which we know by the end. That was right. when Bob Ewell, the father of um, the gal making the accusation, uh, broke his arm in the scuffle. Um, before Boo came in and saved him and actually killed Bobby well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so she mention, mentions Jim breaking his arm, which is a good bookend because that's... Yeah, oh, you word, know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we, I, I feel like I, I don't have it in front of me. Maybe you do. She almost sounds at that point at the very beginning like she's talking about it after his his football career in high school is over. Yeah. So then, yeah, she has this quick thing. The second paragraph of the whole deal starts, When enough years had gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discuss the events leading to his accident. Ah. Which is also funny that mm-hmm. she calls it an accident there. Yeah. Um, I well, mean, that's a that's a good speaking. narrative technique right there. Uh huh. Because <laughs> then we have no idea. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, and on on mm-hmm. that note too, as far as child narrator, I like that most of the book she is a completely reliable narrator. Um, and actually, she still is even in the scene I'm thinking of. But I I kind of enjoyed, although I don't I don't like this thing as a rule. Like I don't think you know. Authors who are writing novels don't 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 overuse this unless it's for a point. <laughs> but I do kind of like that the events of the climactic, quote unquote, battle. Um, the, again, the confrontation when when Bobby Well is trying to to you know attack and possibly murder the kids. Mm-hmm. We don't really know what's going on. We don't know who all is involved. Um, she is reporting you know at one moment when she thinks Jim is doing something, but he's actually not. He's out of commission at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we get a very confused what probably would be, you know, it's dark and she's <laughs> wearing a costume and um, she's a child. You know, mm-hmm. she would have a very garbled view of what is going on. And we get that. Like we don't have we don't get a clear choreography of the fight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And we're only able to piece it together later. Um, mm-hmm. In the conversation that I mean, follows. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a long while before before any of the characters actually say out loud, like, <laughs> that Boo put a knife in Bob Ewell, mm-hmm. even though we know that a knife is in him and he's dead. Right, right. Um, yeah, because for a while in that conversation, Atticus is sort of confused and he's certain that it was Jem who did it. Mm-hmm. And so he's already, in his very pragmatic way, he's already thinking through, okay, well, mm-hmm. here's how we should handle this legally. Here's what's going to happen with Jem, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. We need to do this the right way. And the sheriff, Mr. Heck Tate, says, <laughs> okay, Atticus, well, you don't seem to understand. There's not going to be a trial. Bobby Will fell on his knife. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. end. Um, yeah. Because he wants to, he knows that boo through Jem off right and stabbed bob um, yeah well and i i, I it's a it's a nice nod you know the sheriff obviously is also there to uphold the law but the sheriff understood what happened is that yeah this man came in rescued these children did what he had to do to stop their assailant and right. that that all of that would fly in a court of law and would be fine but it would also destroy the guy who did the good deed Mm-hmm. You know, so we, you know, there wasn't really a question at this point that the sheriff was a good guy. Um, but, you know, cementing alongside Atticus, cementing him as one of the great moral, you know, figures in this town. Mm-hmm. Um, he decides in the moment, like, no, we're, <laughs> he fell on his knife. We're we're not going to drag Boo Radley out of the house after he comes out of the house for the first time in 30 years and saves two lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and I guess that's another sort of, enduring takeaway is even though when people remember this movie and we talk about sort of epic great characters we think of Scout and Atticus but there are so many great moments like this where we get to see multiple definitions of courage Mm -hmm. of justice um, Mm -hmm. uh, of persistence of pride Um, when Mrs. DeBose the um, elderly widow who 
um, always yells really horrible, spiteful, hateful things from her porch at people as they walk by, including the kids, including Atticus. Um, Oh, I'm trying to think what in particular. It turns out she had been addicted to morphine for a bunch of her adult life. Um, and when she realized she was, she was going to be dying soon, she decided she wanted to die clean. She wanted to, uh, get off of the morphine. Um, and it was, she was withdrawing when Jim was going to read to her and that sort of kept her grounded and kept it bearable. Mm -hmm. We find out later. Um, and Atticus again, a little heavy handed, um, on Lee's part writing from Scott's point of view, um, really spells it out and says, um, you know, this is, this is dignity. This is bravery. This is, Mm -hmm. um, this is what this looks like. It's somebody fighting a fight that, you know, you can't win, you know, there's Mm -hmm. not, um, to some people there may, they may look at that situation and say, well, there's no point sort of like the trial. There's another parallel, right? Um, there's no point in this fight. Why would you do it? Well, because in some sense, it's the right thing or the just thing or the, you know, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> um, so you mentioned the idea of required reading. Um, before we go, is there anything in particular you'd like to say about that, um, you know, about this book or, or just the idea, the concept of required reading in general? Or <laughs> Sure. Yeah. <sighs> Now that I'm thinking about it, so <laughs> as an educator, um, what should my response here be? Um, I'm thinking about how whenever we have these texts that are sort of, um, and with the re-release, I know a lot of people are, or the release, I should say, of Ghost at a Watchman, I know that a lot of people are returning to Kill a Mockingbird now. But some of these texts that we take for granted as canonical or important or whatever, um, I think it's always a good exercise to question why something is held up, you know, sort of like we've just done a little bit about, you know, reading this now in this moment as who we are now, what does this book seem to say to us? Um, I think that is an important exercise to think about that and question it. Um, And to try to see things for what's there and not just, so in this case, not just say, um, well, it's important because racism is bad and Atticus is wise and perfect. <laughs> um, but to look at what else is going on there. So, you know, we talked a lot about um, what's going on in the small town and all the subtleties and nuances that, that we saw. Um, and that's not always the stuff that gets talked about right away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about the big issues, you know, capital B, capital I, um, I don't know. So I'm thinking about, um, you know, when you do have a chance to get back into something, um, you know, what, what is important about it? Why? (laughs) And now I'm really thinking about my students as an audience. Um, (laughs) I ask them obnoxious questions like, well, why do you think I wanted you to read this? (laughs) <laughs> what do you, what value do you think I saw in it that I wanted you to, to, to think about or, or whatever? Um, this is probably obnoxious. You can cut all this out. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? I'm going to be a terrible student and say I agree with all of it. <laughs> yeah, but what do you think with your words? 
Uh, I, um, I find, I don't know, um, I have, I have kind of, um, uh, careful listeners and people who know me have probably picked this up. I have a weird, mean, small L libertarian streak in me, um, that's, that's, you know, um, I am politically not this guy, but in a lot of situations, I'm the guy who's always asking, well, who decides? You know, oh, yeah. what mm-hmm. on what authority, like by what standard is this a classic? Really? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, uh, I one of the things um, I think we talked about offline at one point, and we, we should go into this in another episode because it'd be too long of a discussion otherwise. But I'll introduce the topic and say, like in the in the social sciences, most of my education is in psychology, and I always found psychology, although there's a lot of, of very liberal social values there as well, and I like that, I always found psychology a lot more comforting, pleasant, um, intellectually a minimal place to be versus other social sciences like comm studies and sociology because mm-hmm. comm studies and sociology very often came with sort of baked-in values. Um, you know, There are certain kinds of conclusions you are not allowed to draw from the data. Um, one thing I got from both social and, and comp studies research methods classes was always like, you know, you can never come to a conclusion based on the data that justifies the system. Um, you know, it is never the, the, um, disadvantaged party's fault in any way, shape or form. Like culture mm-hmm. is never to blame for how, for disparate incomes, things like that. Um, that while broadly useful social justice values, as somebody who is interested in the science of all this, I would always say, well, you know, A, that doesn't sound scientific, and B, who decided <laughs> that? You know, did we did we do a lot of research and come up with that? Or is this just, you know, some pioneers in the field at some point got together and said, this is what our science is going to be about? Right. Um, and not, again, that I disagree with those things, just that it offended my sensibility of what science should be. But what, <laughs> you know, who should decide what sensibility of science is right? Like, who who should decide that science should be dispassionate and that we can't come at it with values? Um, you know. So anyhow, all of that mm-hmm. is to say this is this is a kind of question I'm always kind of interested in. And required reading falls under that pretty hard. Like, who decides? Um, under On what grounds? Uh, and mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a whole world of controversies there um, that are probably going to be permanently beyond the scope of this podcast. But things like textbooks, you know, it's... One of the big controversies in in textbooks is uh, there's some history standards currently being (laughs) – yeah, either revised or the revisions were just announced and finalized. Um, But, you know, there's markets like Texas that have a very particular bent on American history, but they're a huge education market. So nobody dares publish a history textbook that, you know, if if Texas Board of Education wants it called the war between the states or the war of northern aggression, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know – (sighs) <sighs> not going mm-hmm. there. But um, that's that's what some of those textbooks are going to call it because they want to be sold in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I hear that something is required reading, it's not necessarily that I think it shouldn't be read or that it shouldn't even be required. It's just I'm always curious, like, who decided that and mm-hmm. why? Yeah. Um, and not even that I think it's a bad idea that we have required reading, just that mm-hmm. I find it an interesting question, who gets to decide these values? Um, and it is, you know, there's a reason why why people want to be on school boards and why people fight over things like um, standards of history education, um, you know, because this will have an influence on the next generation. And somebody does actually like there is no uh, there is no objective standard of what is the canon of our literature. 
You know, there, right. there is no science of that. There is no accounting for taste. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no accounting for culture. Um, ultimately, somebody is going to have to decide. And that is an interesting, controversial, and difficult thing. And I'm glad I'm not actually in charge of deciding who decides in any direct <laughs> way. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it, it happens piece by piece. Um, that's the other tricky thing, too, is you can't dismantle a canon that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. But it does exist. But it's <laughs> it's everywhere. It is the Matrix. Um, yeah. But I guess you can take down... Can you take down the Matrix? Bad example? Bad analogy? Mm. Um, but yeah, you can't... You can't take down the canon, but you absolutely can take down the canon right. piece by piece because it's a, a big yeah. amalgamation of, yeah. of junk. Well, and that's, that's, um, that's you know, in, in, inherent in that, there's a, there's a good point here to all of this, which is, like, these are not, even when they are works of genius, these are works of people. You know, people made them, and people can understand <laughs> them, and people can have opinions about them. And, mm-hmm. you know, we, we make the canon, we can unmake the canon. Yeah. Um, and if you dislike the canon, then you should run for your local school board. <laughs> A message from Max and Katie. You have been listening to Priority. Once again, for complete show notes, or if you'd like to send us feedback via email or subscribe to the show, visit us on the web at priority.fm. If you enjoyed the program today, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive rating and review as that will help new listeners find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting updates or communicating with us via tweets, follow us on Twitter, where we are at PriorityFM. That's at P-R-I-O-R-I-T-Y-F-M. Thanks again for listening. The only other thing I have to say is uh, that I liked the book. <laughs> so you reinforce the canon. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if it should be required reading. I mean, who decides? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's a free-for-all. Everybody do your own book report.